Welcome to The Edge, the official podcast of Bass Edge, brought to you by the world's leading underground construction equipment company, Itchwitch, proud to support the sports you love. I'm Steve Brigman, and I'm joined by the host of Bass Edge Television, Aaron Martin. How are you, Aaron? Hey, I am doing well, Steve. Uh, we've got a fun show ahead of us. Uh, we've got a story of broken bones fishing, and of course, Mark Zona <laughs> is on standby to discuss smallmouth, and then uh, Bob Lusk will be along a little later to discuss matching the hatch. That sounds like all good stuff, except the broken bones. So let's uh, get started. Get her like that one, boy. Good job. I don't know of any other sport that offers the challenge of bass fishing. Oh, did you see that? Yes, I saw that. That was awesome. (laughs) Watch for the fish to pace the bait. What do you think of that, huh? That's full contact fishing right there. You're listening to The Edge, the official audio program of Bass Edge. Folks, we did it. After all the talk, Aaron and I finally went fishing. And I must say, Aaron, we had quite a day, didn't we? We did have quite a day, and uh, just a lot was thrown at us, I think, that we learned a lot from. Well, we had a few surprises, and I know that as we hit the water, we were pretty daggum excited because it was a foggy day dark morning. We got out very, very early. The fish had been up in shallower water, and boy, we just knew they were going to tear them Zara spooks up, but uh, that's kind of how that goes, you know. You start trying to predict the fish, and uh, too often you're wrong. Yeah, I've I've been there, done that, <laughs> let's, let's just say the least. And, you know, one of the things, Steve, that I was really, I guess, uh, shocked by is, of course, we realized very quickly that the topwater bite was pretty much non-existent, but then even once the fog broke, you know, and that sun kind of started burning off that fog. There was no wind, and really along about the time of about 9.30 in the morning, and of course we're talking a major weekend here, boat traffic, and it was like a sheet of glass out there. There was absolutely no water movement. Well, that's true, and I mean, that's your worst enemy here on these highland lakes in, in the Ozarks and in other parts of the country. You know, deep, clear lakes, no wind high skies. Man, it's just it's just kind of the hardest conditions to fish. You know, on this particular day, we were going out because you had done so well the weekend before. And uh, I think we went out maybe a little confident about how that was going to go and uh, kind of thinking that we knew exactly what was going to happen. But man, there's just the lesson that we talk about over and over again. Things weren't quite what we thought and we had to adjust. But we made the adjustments and we caught some nice fish. Well, and I think you hit the nail on the head. Adjustments in fishing, I don't care when it is or where you're at, is absolutely paramount. And it kind of reminded me back to that interview. You remember when we did the interview with George Cochran and we were talking about Mm -hmm. boat traffic and, you know, shallow fish and things like that? That was really one of the things that came into play and served to our benefit because of the lack of wind and just the high skies. Well, you know, eventually uh, folks got out on their toys and, you know, and and there became quite a bit of of waves in action, which kind of helped like the wind but uh you know another thing we kind of ran into was uh how a boat buzzing by us would seem to activate the fish and we talked about that and i think that my best guess on that deal is that uh, it somehow activates the shad and that activates the fish to hit them but uh i think there was no doubt that it had an effect oh definitely and you know just to kind of put it in perspective and describe for the listeners of where we were fishing you know we were setting way out off of some of these long points, not even within a cast distance of the shoreline. And I found it very interesting, two things. One is of how they moved from week to week. 
week. You know, I was catching them before, remember I said, in the 6 to 12 foot range. Well, now these fish are on the move, and it was almost like they've moved out into the 20 range, you know, setting out kind of off of some of these uh, shallower points. But any other time, Steve, you know, I would get furious if a jet ski or a boat would come buzzing <laughs> as close as what they were to us on the day that we were out. But actually, you remember that we were kind of joking about, we were hoping that we were going to get some traffic running across these points because of, of the reason that you said. Right. We certainly didn't want it to be an unsafe distance, but uh, it became very, very clear that, that it was having an effect. But, uh, you know, another thing struck me about our trip, uh, something that I had all, you know, I'd learned very young in Texas about this time of year and this transition into this summer period and through the summer is that early in the year when they first move out into those summer patterns, the fish seem to be, the bass seem to be more grouped up. And as the summer progresses, they tend to scatter a bit. Well, this weekend, when we found fish, we caught them in the same spots. Just It was a spot thing. I mean, there they are. We kept fishing in the same spots, and it was mostly smallmouth on Friday. Yeah, it was. And, you know, I think that goes back to, you've heard us talk about finding the sweet spot on the spot. And, of course, uh, some of these places, it would take us a while to, you know, looking at the graph and obviously moving around with a trolling motor, making several casts. But once you found them, maybe perhaps on which side of the point that the fish were holding, it was definitely, you know, you could not deviate uh, outside of that spot or you're basically just churning water. Yeah, that's a, this is the day you want to bring your buoy and mark your spots on, on your GPS. And uh, it worked out that good. And, of course, I know that you had caught a number of your fish uh, a week ago uh, on Carolina rigs and things that were just a little off the bottom. But, boy, those football jigs were just the answer on those smallmouths. Most definitely. Definitely they were, and you know, I'm really looking forward to next week we have Pete Glusick that's coming up, and we're going to be talking specifically about uh, using that football jig on some of these drop-offs. But the other thing while we were out there, Steve, I just really had to hold myself back from wanting to pick up that drop shot, and you know, I kept my head buried in that graph looking for the opportunity, but it just really never materialized. No, those fish, they were really locked on the bottom. Now, there were some spots somewhere on the lake, you know, suspended, I'm betting, but the fish we found, and we both kind of partial to those small and we did find the smallmouth. It was so subtle that it was almost not noticeable on the graph, but uh, you could certainly feel uh, the bottom change and just get a little chunkier and a little rockier and little spots. And they just seem to uh, really be hanging on that. You know, I was trying to just imagine what that looked like up at the boat. All these fish just hanging around these little rocks. But that did seem to be the way it was. Well, I think it's 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 the topic that we talk a lot about, and that's transition. You know, a lot of these areas were predominantly pea gravel. But any time that you could find kind of that combination of, of really going to the hard, bulky surface to where you maybe you had some of those irregular rocks that were underneath and composed with, you know, a little bit of brush or some wood cover that was down there. Boy, that was definitely the staging area. Certainly a trip that I will remember for a long time. Well, and it had this effect on me. Uh, I'm ready to go back. Yeah, I, I most definitely am ready to go back. <laughs> of course, I'm I'm limping a little bit more than uh, what I was the day that I was running the trolling motor. Yeah, I heard about that. I heard you've been playing maybe some tennis? Uh, no, no. Well, yes and no. Of course, for those of you who don't know, I was a big, avid tennis player throughout high school and that, and I actually love the sport. But the deal is, uh, long story short, I basically I broke my toe. And the funny part of it is how I did it. Well, of course, we have a uh, deal that we're going to here coming up uh, with Ditch Witch, and we had some technical difficulties. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm technically challenged when it comes to setting up things. And so I wanted to make sure Bass Edge has a Nintendo Wii that we use as part of the Bass Edge interactive experience. And I've never set it up and really haven't spent much time. So I thought I would use, you know, 
that Sunday afternoon to get this thing hooked up to make sure I was comfortable with this. And, of course, they have a tennis game. Long story short, Steve, I broke my toe playing tennis on a Nintendo Wii. So there you go. There's some ammo. <laughs> you know, you're my buddy, and I hate to see you go through pain. But I'm telling you what, I'm sorry I missed that. I just, uh, you know, you don't have to move your feet with those Wiis. You, well, you know that, right? yeah. I, I, if I I'd have been there, that. I could have shown you that, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you could. So that that will be something that will haunt us, haunt me, I should say, for a long period of time. Yeah, it's going to haunt you. It'll probably haunt you next weekend if we get out on the lake trying to operate that trolling motor, which uh, means oh, I'll yeah. probably be doing that. So we'll probably be going in circles. But anyway, yeah, man, looking forward to it. But I tell you what, I'm also looking forward to this next interview, man, Mark Zona. Let's take a quick break, come back, and have an interview with Mark Zona. You've got the truck. You've got the toys. Now it's time to get the hitch that gives you more time to play with both. It's the tow and stow receiver hitch by B&W. You want options? Select the ball size, adjust the height to level the trailer, or stow it out of the way in just seconds. It's 10,000 tow and pounds worth of durability, convenience, and the latest technology that has made B&W famous. The tow and stow receiver hitch by B&W. Call 1-866-BEST-HITCH. Welcome back to The Edge, brought to you in part by Ditch Witches Zon, establishing a new standard in trencher power and versatility. Welcome back to The Edge. Along for the ride today is an angler with roots planted in Michigan that has afforded him a front row seat to some of the best smallmouth fishing in the country. His role of host on two of ESPN's fishing shows places him at the forefront of some of the most cutting edge information in the sport. It's none other than Mark Zona. Mark, welcome to The Edge. Aaron, seriously, thank you so much for having me on here. I've um, been looking forward to it. You know, Mark, I've got to wonder, though, if our producers have totally overestimated our ability to get something constructive done in the time that we have together. Well, that's a, a politically correct way of saying, is there any chance we can get through this in the next few minutes and, and make some sense of what we're going to talk about? <laughs> well, we, we will certainly give it our best try, Mark. And, you know, I, I want to start out by asking you, what in the world prompted your interest in the sport of fishing. Aaron, it's it's all I've done. Long before ESPN, I, I was just a boat salesman seven months out of the year, and, and I fished tournaments for five months of the year, and that was how we paid bills. And it's weird because, you know, as much as I fished down south and, and I've covered so many Elite Series events down south, I always was infatuated. I don't even know if infatuated is the right word. I've always been obsessed with smallmouth. And, and that is where, man, if there was a tournament anywhere in the north, whether it be Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, New York, and it sounds strange, but those lakes that I grew up fishing, it's very conceivable to catch 100 to 200 fish a day in a tournament, you know, not just a, a perfect day out fishing. And if you cannot get obsessed with fishing in general, bass fishing in general, doing that, I, you're not human. It's just a different world up here. And I hate to sound pathetic, but it's why I live in Michigan. It's why I live here. And it's why I want to, I want my twin boys to experience exactly what I did growing up. Well, you know, I've always said that as anglers, we kind of have the same uh, behavior traits as a, you know, somebody that's addicted to gambling or, 
or anything else. And and it's I think because of that that stirring of that passion and you know it's that emotion, it's that feeling of that strike on the end of the line. And before we kind of dive off into the specifics on smallmouth fishing, right. you know, you were a competitive angler with with earnings really over six figures prior to making that transition mm-hmm. into hosting and, and commentating. Do you miss the competition? No. And I know that sounds weird. I was missing one very, very, very valuable. And I know what it is now. I did not know what it was then. I am missing a very key trait to be a top-level Elite Series guy, a Kevin Van Dam, a Skeet Reese, a Greg Hackney. I didn't know what it was then. I know what it is now. It's what I call a foot-on-throat mentality. And those guys have that drive to, I mean, this is going to sound horribly insensitive to say this, but when you're down as an angler, that top echelon really wants to hold you down. You know what I, and you could see it a, a lot right now on the Bassmaster Elite Series with those guys. They want to beat each other up on the water and everybody else as far as the bags that they weigh in. That's a great tournament one time for 85% of that field. These guys want to do that every single day. And and I did not possess that. You know, I mean, I hate to say it. I, I was the dude that studied the night before the test, and if I got by, great. And and unfortunately, uh, you know, it followed into my fishing. I would mess with my co-anglers. I'd mess with my roommates, and I would do this during tournaments. Granted, I, I had some great tournaments, but I never had that real, real killer instinct. And I know that now. I, I think that's a great point because I kind of referenced that, you know, back being, I, I had an affection for motocross racing growing up. And the reason why I didn't make it there is because if you had the doubt in your head before going over a jump to give it the gas or not to give it to gas, sure. you know, you're going to crash. And uh, I, I don't think it comes up, and I'll throw this question out to you. You know, I, I don't think it's from the standpoint that they, uh, are doing that to crack down on your personality or, or try and hold you down. It's it's just the nature of the beast of wanting to be their best. Absolutely. You know, I'll look back on some of those terms <laughs> that I remind myself that, that I may have lost by an ounce or two ounces or three ounces. And I'll look back and think, maybe I shouldn't have talked to the guy on the dock for 20 minutes about how to catch him on his lake in the final day of a tournament. <laughs> but, but, but here's the thing. That's who I am, and that's maybe what brought me to where I'm at right now, you know? And a lot of people ask me, you know, hey, when you're done with the TV, will you fish the Bassmaster Elite Series one day? And I might. I, you know, I'm never going to say, I'm never going to say never, but I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. And as much time as I spend around Kevin, we are absolute best friends in the world, but we are totally different human beings as far as you know, he has a competitive drive that is uh, a lot of people what asks what makes that kind of an angler, that, that top percentile. And it is a drive to win like I've never seen in my life. And it isn't a drive to win in fishing. It's a drive to win in everything. Yeah, that's a very unique trait. Well, and I think that comes back to, you know, we've talked about here on the edge before concerning just e- evaluating your skills as a person and then certainly transferring that over into bass fishing. You've got to be able to understand what those traits are that you possess, what you're good at, your strengths, but also sure. your personality. And uh, that goes a long way in this sport. But the good thing is, Mark, we can still go out here and have fun just trying to chase these 
fish under more of a recreational sampling? Well, you know, it's weird because, you know, I, I held a fishing rod when I was four years old and started really, really fishing tournaments when I was nine. And uh, right now in my life, I enjoy bass fishing as much as I did back when I was nine years old. It's amazing because maybe it's watching my kids grow up. Maybe it's, it's taping worlds. I can't even describe it. I'm, I'm as obsessed right now as I was 25 years ago. And to have that, it, uh, I didn't just age myself right there, did I? <laughs> I? I'm trying to hold on to my youth right now is what I'm trying to do. But, you know, when I grew up, I grew up on the south side of Chicago. And, and a lot of my, you know, fishing was, I'm not just, I'll just put it bluntly. Fishing wasn't cool to the, the, the popular kids in Chicago. And it's because they never experienced that. You know, every one of your listeners, every one of your listeners and your viewers can close their eyes right now while we're having this conversation and remember that first bass. You can absolutely remember that feeling of that bunk, and you could remember seeing that, everything about it. And I don't know if we go fishing now to, to recreate that moment of, of when, when we caught that first bass, whether we were 20 years old or five years old. And I never thought my friends growing up in Chicago, I would look at them and think to myself, Y'all just don't get it because you never done it. You have never done it. And uh, if you know what's weird is somebody asked me about Worlds, not to talk about the show too much, but you know somebody asked me they said, well, what what do you want out of Worlds? Because you know Worlds is not a not an instructional show like Bass Edge. It's a, I said here's here's my thought on Worlds when we started doing this four years ago. If nothing else but one kid, one adult, one woman walks up to me and says, man, I never knew what bass fishing was. I went out and did it. Thanks, because I, I saw the excitement you had on that show. If just one person does that, Aaron, to me, you could take the paycheck, you could take everything, all the stuff that goes on with the show, and you know what it takes to do a show. If one person gets that addiction, that obsession that you have, that your listeners have, that your viewers have, if one person gets that, that show is an ultimate success to me. Well, no question. And, and certainly the day that, that that feeling goes away, it's probably time to, to retire the rods. And I hate to say it, man. The day that feeling goes away for me is probably my last day on earth. So. I, I, I hear you. You know, and, and speaking of retracing our steps back to the smallmouth, you know, obviously they hold a special place in your heart. But how do they differ from largemouth and spotted bass? The unique thing about a smallmouth that's a lot different than, you know, a largemouth and a spot is uh, a smallmouth wants to go toe-to-toe with you, especially if you get on, on a lot of the lakes in Michigan or New York or Minnesota. He is not very fearful of you, of your presence. In fact, a smallmouth really doesn't want you in his area to where a largemouth is going to be a lot more weary. Um, I don't know how to describe a spot. I mean, a spot is just naturally a very tweaked out animal. But a smallmouth is, he's a pack hunter. And the thing about a smallmouth, I like their attitude as far as, as much as he probably doesn't want to be caught, there's a lot of tendencies. He doesn't really care. And what I mean by that, I've caught so many smallmouth, I've been fighting a smallmouth, and he's come unhooked, and, and this is true, that he's come unhooked at the boat and instantly grabbed my bait again. That is a very, that is a fearless fish. And, and to, to see that stuff consistently, um, that, you know, that's, like I said, when you see their blind aggression 
towards what they eat and how they live. It's unbelievable the things I've witnessed with them. And and that brings up a good point because, you know, when you think about smallmouth and their habitat and, and clear water that's associated with that fish, you know, the thought of clear water for a lot of us make us cringe. And why is this not a factor for you? Well, you know, here's the amazing thing. D- dirty water makes me cringe. You know what I mean? It's just what world you grow up in. You know, I, I, I've grown up fishing water that you can see 40 to 50 feet down. When I come to Gunnersville or Kentucky Lake or something like that, where I can only see eight inches down, I'm like, wow, I need to find some clean water, which is the, <laughs> is the exact opposite of a southern base mentality. The thing with clear water is it intimidates the fishermen much more than the fish. Those fish live. They live in that kind of water. And the good thing that you have in that clear water is smallmouth are complete sight feeders. They are absolute see it, hurt it, eat it. That is how they live their life. And the amazing thing is, and this is going to, I'm going to go a little deep into this, is they're either there or they're not, where to where you can know if you're fishing Grand Lake in Oklahoma or you're fishing Rayburn in Texas, you may be fishing in an area and not using the right technique. And, and you know this, you say to yourself, man, I know they're here. I got to figure out how to catch them. That is not the case with a smallmouth. They're there, they're biting. If you throw out 10 times on a rock shoal and you don't get a bite, go to the next one because they're going to let you know purely by crushing what you're throwing they're going to let you know that they're there. You know, that's the cool thing about it. You don't need to sit there and say, well, I need to tweak my technique a little bit. If you throw a variety of about four different techniques for smallmouth, they're going to let you know if they're there. So what areas, you know, being the latter part of June here, what areas are you, are you targeting this time of well, year? You, it, it, that's all relevant to where you're at. My family, you know, we're, we're going, heading up to Traverse City, actually, in the next few days, you know, over the 4th of July, and they'll be just starting to spawn on a lot of those lakes. So here's here's the best way to put it. The one misconception about a smallmouth is a lot of people throughout the years I've read, you know, that they, it's a deeper fish. It wants to be deeper, you know, and on a lot of lakes that, that does apply. But the one thing that is very, very, very overlooked for big ones, big smallmouth, where I'm, where I'm heading here in the next week, whether it's there or Thousand Islands or, or Lake Vermilion in Minnesota, there is an unbelievable population of big smallmouth that want to live extremely shallow between April and October. And when I mean really shallow, you know, I'm talking two to five foot of water. And Aaron, they will stay there all summer long. And what I'm going to look for the, the main thing that I hunt, a smallmouth will never be somewhere unless he's got plenty of food. If that buffet is not there for him, he will not use it. If I get in an area, I'll give you a for instance. Last year when the Elite Series was going on at Oneida, I snuck up to a thousand islands alone for a day. And I was kind of looking around, looking around, looking around. And all of a sudden I, I started to see six to eight inch long perch following my jerk bait. You might as well stop right there because... That is what they revolve their life. If, if you get in an area where there's no food, where there's no crayfish or gobies or smelt or perch, you are not going to catch smallmouth with any size. There might be resident knucklehead, you know, 14 to 15 inches, but true trophy smallmouth will revolve every single day of their life following things they want to eat. Well, speaking of, of following things that they want to eat, and you named off a few, what, uh, in closing here, 
what are your top bait choices for targeting these animals? Um, I'm actually, I'm, I'm going to throw you three of them, but, uh, you know, a tube and a, and a drop shot are by far, and, you know, that's very staple. It's, you know, that's a staple thing you're going to get bit on, but you truly cannot throw a big enough jerk bait for a trophy smallmouth. Of all of the seven to eight pound smallmouth that I've caught over the last 20 years, the biggest ones have come on a jerk bait. That is, to me, that is the best big smallmouth bait on the planet. And, and, you know, if, you know, Lucky Craft makes a, 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 a pointer 128, it's half the size of your arm. A lot of my, a lot of the jerk baits I throw, they're, they're actually salmon plugs, <laughs> you know, and Aaron, they're miserable to throw. But when you're throwing a jerk bait for a smallmouth, when, when, when your listeners go out, if they come up north and you're throwing a, a, a jerk bait half the size of your hand, say to yourself, put something on bigger because it truly, truly will catch you the biggest one of your life. Well, that is great advice. And Mark, unfortunately, I need to uh, send us out to break. But before I do, keep up the great work, safe travels, and thanks for your time and being part of The Edge. Aaron, same to you and uh, appreciate having me on. Power. Productivity. Speed. It's the best trencher ever made, not to mention the best plow, dumper, tiller, backhoe, stump grinder, and tool carrier ever made. The Zahn, the revolution, is here. Now you can harness the full power of your boat electronics and catch more fish. Introducing Electronics 101. Whether a beginner or more advanced, leading electronics instructor Mike Webb shows you how to get the most out of any sonar unit. Common problems and frequently asked questions are covered in detail. Electronics 101 also includes bonus deep fishing tips from industry pros. Master any brand graph. Order your DVD by calling 888-390-8780 or online at BassEdge.com. Hey, Edge listeners, this is Pete Wuzek, and thanks for listening to The Edge. Man, y'all had way too much fun with that interview, man. <laughs> we did have too much fun. We were like two kids in a candy store, you know. I do believe at the end of it, though, we were able to get some constructive items out of it, but he's a good guy. Oh, Mark Zona is one of the articulate and entertaining voices of our industry and just a great guy. You know, man, I'm really hoping that he can find time uh, from his ESPN duties to come over and, and shoot a show with us this year. I, just, I think that'd be fun. It certainly will be fun, and I can tell you what else it'll be is educational. You know, his insight on smallmouth fishing, I mean, you can tell from the interview that that is something that he absolutely loves and he understands them quite well oh well he does and of course you know he lives in michigan and there's just some incredible smallmouth fisheries up there um, maybe start hinting around maybe see if i can get invited up there for a fishing trip <laughs> <laughs> there you go there you go and you know the the other thing is that uh, really kind of that area or that part of the country takes clear water to a whole new level and i thought he had some great comments on that well he did you know and a lot of uh, a lot of the things he said about uh, fishing in the clear water there are things that i kind of related to you know and i've said before you know the move from texas to the ozarks was uh, quite a big change uh, as far as fishing for bass and uh, some of the things he was saying were just 
the absolute things that I am still in the process of learning. Absolutely, and continue to learn every time that I'm out on the water. So, uh, Mark, thanks so much again for taking time. But, Steve, we have a question this week, as usual, but I want to kind of throw this out to you, and it, it comes from Hank in Charlotte, North Carolina. And, Stephen, the reason why I want your input on this is because as your uh, past, you've obviously done a tremendous amount of guiding in deer hunting, and scent control is really important when it comes to that. Mm-hmm. But our question is actually pertaining to that. And what Hank wants to know is, I recently heard you discussing the importance of sunscreen. Lately, I've been quickly applying a spray sunscreen and not getting the best coverage. The spray allows me to avoid getting sunscreen on my hands. I would like to use my hands to be liberally applying sunscreen lotion. However, I am reluctant to do so because I fear of contaminating my bait with a scent the bass finds objectionable. Yes, I could apply a scent to my bait to mask any contaminants, and I could wash my hands with ivory soap after every application. I keep it in my boat. I fish a lot, but catch very few, and I don't want to handicap myself further. To help me minimize the addition of more neurotic obsessions, do you know of a sunscreen and bug repellent that do not leave a harmful contaminant? Do you worry yourself with such concerns, and do you wash your hands after each application? application. I realize you may not be able to name a brand. Just tell me how you and the pros feel about getting sunscreen on your hands. Steve, why don't you go first on this one? You know, my first thought was, I just—I can't imagine an angler having a neurotic obsession. I don't know any anglers like that. Hey, easy now. <laughs> easy now. I resemble that. <laughs> hey, no, listen, I want to start this conversation by saying this. Not using your sunscreen is absolutely not an option. There are a million new cases of skin cancer in this country every year, and skin cancer is a very deadly cancer. So uh, so we'll start by saying, yeah, we're not going to consider not protecting ourselves. So how do we best do it? Okay. Well, Aaron, you know, when we shoot in the field every year, you and I, you know, you, I, the cameraman, all the guys, we get up and we put our sunscreen on like in our hotel room or wherever before we get going, and then we're able to wash our hands. So we're good for, you know, three hours, four hours, whatever. And so uh, that's a good first approach. But I personally carry, and I wish I knew the brand. I would tell you the brand if I remembered it. And I looked in the garage when I saw your question, and I couldn't find it. But they make this biodegradable soap that is scentless. And I carry it in the boat, and I do wash my hands afterwards. But as far as using the spray, that's that's a funny. Aaron hates that spray, and I Absolutely. use the spray. <laughs> He won't let me bring my spray on board. <laughs> he doesn't like it because it's a mess. I like it, whatever. But once you spray, you need to rub that sunscreen in, and that's very important. So I would urge you to uh, perhaps keep that soap, the biodegradable stuff. We don't want to be putting, you know, the soaps and, and harmful materials in our lakes. And uh, the scent, the cover scent is, you know, that's a pretty good idea. But as a hunter, I was not a huge lover of, of those scents. I just always felt like it just gave an extra scent <laughs> it's sort of confusing to the deer so yeah absolutely use your sunscreen absolutely rub it in wash your hands with a soap that's not going to hurt the environment and uh what do you say aaron well i i think that's great advice a i don't like the spray because ultimately like you said and like hank points out in his email here in order to keep from getting speckled i mean you still have to rub it in so it, you're accomplishing really nothing by the spray but that's just my personal preference diving off into the sunscreen and how to apply it normally what i do when i'm reapplying during the day I rub it in and I get it, you know, pretty liberal application, but I just carry a towel in my, you know, compartment there and I wipe my hands off very good because the other thing that you got to be careful of, it's not just the scent on your bait, but it's also 
you know, it makes your hands pretty slick. And when you're hanging on to a, a rod and reel and you've been sweating <laughs> See, I, all the day. <laughs> I knew you were going there. I just knew you were going no, there. No. I, 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 you know, and, and I'll just tell the folks on our trip this last Friday, I just put on sunscreen and I had washed my hands, but they're still a little slick. And I set the hook on a fish and, and uh, one of Aaron's rod and reels went in the water. Now we got it. We, we were able to grab it for it on its way to the bottom. But that's another good reason <laughs> yeah, for that, cleaning your hands. That, lose your rod and reel. that is a consideration, and I will say, just give you credit, that was a very good fish on the end of the line. But back to the topic, that's really my approach to it. Now, another idea, I guess, if you really want to, to get into really protecting your hands and getting the scent on your bait would be the use of gloves, but I'm not a big fan of that either because what happens, you know, if you bought a pair of surgical gloves or something and use this, you know, they're going to wind up in the lake or blowing out of your boat or in a landfill or something like that. So I think the best advice is just to buy maybe an unscented brand of sunscreen. You wipe off really good on a towel and be done with it. Now, as far as the bug repellent, I am not a big fan of bug repellent that has any type of DEET in it. I've seen what it does to fishing hooks mm-hmm. and lures and things like that, and you can't tell me that that's not going to have an impact on your skin. So my only solution there, and this isn't an endorsement, it's just a, an idea that you might try. You know, Thermacell has that deal where you're able to set in the boat and it kind of sends off um, emits more of a natural uh, thing that I think are found in chrysanthemums. And uh, again, it's just a natural way to repel bugs. You don't have to actually put it on you. It's battery powered, set right there on the front deck of your boat. So, Hank, there you have it, and there you are. Well, yeah, you know, one of the things that I used to use, and of course, this again, you got to clean your hands, but we used to use in Texas for nice fishing is uh, skin so soft. It's made by a cosmetic company. And, you know, I always like to say I may not be the best fisherman around, but I got the softest yeah, skin. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> there was other reasons you were using that. <laughs> You know, I want to do throw in one more thing on the sun protection. As uh, we shoot television shows in the sun all day throughout the year, and and, uh, and and one thing that I've done is I've gone to buying clothing that has the protection in them. Even on some of the hottest days, I've found that the really light shirts, long sleeve shirts, and I've got the very, very light long pants uh, that have the, the 40 SPF in them. I've gone that way. Uh, one reason is I don't like feeling sticky. I don't like sunscreen so much, but uh, but that's another option. There's, some, there's getting to be more and more products out there that are sun protective, and uh, that's a consideration for you too, Hank. Well, all good stuff. Hank, thanks so much uh, for sending in your question. In the meantime, Bob Lusk looks like uh, he is called in, so Steve, we better get out to a break, and uh, we'll patch him through and get going. That sounds great. Always great to hear from the pond, Bob. a safe and convenient way to access any trailer boat. Introducing the new Flex Step by MegaWare Keelguard. Forget climbing over the sides ever again. Mount a Flex Step on the side of your trailer for easy access to rod lockers and tackle compartments with no boarding. Or bolt the high-quality aluminum Flex Step to your trailer's tongue and enter your craft without ever getting wet again. Completely flexible, great for cleaning windshields, and the hollow tube doubles as a storage area. Available at major marine centers or learn more via the web. Hey, Edge listeners, this is Terry Backsay. Hi, I'm Jamie Cyphers. I'm Diddy Brower. This is Michael Murphy. Hi, this is Pam Bolton, and you're listening to The Edge. One of the topics that we spend a lot of time talking about here on The Edge 
is the topic of matching the hatch. And here today to help us really apply that specifically to largemouth bass is fisheries biologist and editor of Pond Boss Magazine, Mr. Bob Lusk. Bob, welcome back to The Edge. Hello, Aaron. Thanks for that welcome. Glad to be here with you. Absolutely. You know, Bob, we throw the term match the hatch around a lot in this sport, but it's really commonly viewed as a uh, topic that is used for our northern counterparts and some of the cold water fish. Help us dive into this and how it applies specifically specifically to the largemouth bass. You know, Aaron, largemouth bass sit at the very top of the food chain. And the more we know about the food chain, the more we'll understand how those fish make their living. You know, they feed on big meals, a seven or eight pound bass. It's not unusual for that creature to feed on a one pound bass. But how does that one pound bass get to that size? You know, as we're thinking about matching the hatch, one of the things that crosses my mind is the aquatic insect life in a pond or a lake. You know, early in the year, as the water begins to warm, nature springs to life. And here here we are in the summer months now, and that life carries on. All these different bugs in the fish, they're spawning and reproducing. When insects begin to hatch, that often influences the behavior of the bait fish. For example, when the mayflies hatch back in April, May, and earlier this month, what's going on is those larvae are moving away from the safe havens, and then they swim to the surface attached to a rock, and then the insect emerges and flies off to begin to reproduce. But if it doesn't make it all the way to the surface, you know that's because something ate it. And a lot of the bait fish, specifically fish like bluegill sunfish, bluegill are carnivores, They chase insects. They want to eat meat. So if we can see some signs above the waterline, oftentimes that can trigger some thoughts as to what's going on below the waterline. And what I mean by that is, especially where we have aquatic plants, you can pretty well bet there's going to be all kinds of nymphs, uh, larvae, different kinds of insects. Dragonfly larvae are down there. And when a bluegill wraps his lips around that, that is a full meal deal for a creature like that. And then he becomes more of a full meal deal for a bass. So oftentimes when you think about match the hatch, you're thinking about cold water fish such as trout and what's the best insect type fly to use. But if you're a bass fisherman, I'd be looking at some of those insects as food for the bait fish that the bass are feeding on. And then I'd try to, you know, mimic what those bait fish are doing. So you can attract some more bites that way. That's a little different perspective on it. Well, yeah, because that's what I was going to say. You know, obviously, I think the the fly fishermen have it figured out because they're able to, you know, customize their their baits and actually present that in a fashion that is going to be natural uh, to an insect. But you know, kind of us bass anglers out here, uh, that's a little different story when it comes to lure choices. That's exactly right. If you know that bluegill are feeding on mayfly larvae and the bluegill have moved up shallow, then you can pretty well bet that the bass are not far behind. And you can mimic some of those different bait fish based on sometimes what those bait fish eat. For example, bluegill like to congregate. Red ear sunfish like to congregate. But you know what? When the food sources come, they spread out. They chase food all day long. You know, where shad, on the other hand, they're open water fish. Threadfin shad, for example, they're they're gleaning what they want to eat from the open water. So you know, they, they might be surrounding the points. You know, when threadfin shad are spawning, they'll migrate into the shores. And oftentimes you'll see a raft of threadfin shad at dawn that are way out from the shore, maybe 25 feet, just moving around the edge. You know, but you can pretty well bet when they get through with that, they're going to go out and start to feed again. So if you can think about what the bait fish are eating oftentimes, you can predict the bait fish behavior. And if you can do that, that could influence the lure choices you're going to have to try to catch that giant bucket mouth. Well, it sounds to me, as anglers, we need to be paying attention to the insects that's present in the bodies of water that we're fishing. I'd sure think about it. You know, like rocky outcroppings, those are notorious insect havens. Gosh, when, when you see riprap 
and you see it in May and June, you can pretty well bet there's going to be bug hatches coming up from that riprap starting early April, going all the way to the to the end of July. You know, and, and a lot of times some of the bugs will hatch at certain times of day, like early morning or late evening, and that can sure influence the migration habits or the feeding habits of some of those bait fish that feed on that, which could influence the way that you think about what you might want to toss out there to try to catch a bass. Well, Bob, once again, always great information, but we need to get out to a break. Before we do, you're always so generous in answering questions under the Ask the Pro section there at uh, BassEdge.com. For additional information, where can our listeners go to uh, get more information? Then go to PondBoss.com. Click on PondBoss.com. Check out Ask the Boss. Gosh, hundreds of thousands of posts there. Click on the info side, and you can chase me down. My email address through the contact information at PondBoss.com is a great way to catch up with me. Well, Bob, once again, thank you for your time and look forward to talking with you again in the near future. Hey, let's do it again real soon, Aaron. Appreciate it. Now you can order Bass Edge Seasons 1 and 2 on DVD. Own the best resource for tips and techniques in bass fishing as host Aaron Martin tackles lakes across the country with the industry's top pro anglers, including Edwin Evers, Boyd Duckett, Alton Jones, and Pam Martin-Wells. The two sets include all 25 episodes with never-before-seen footage, over three hours of bonus pro angler interviews, bloopers, and highlights. Each two-disc set is just $19.95. Call 1-888-390-8780 or order online at BassEdge.com. That's it for today, but be sure to look for us on Bass Edge Television, seen three times weekly on the Outdoor Channel. We can also be seen on the World Fishing Network and Wild TV in Canada. Steve, who do we have on deck for next week? Uh, we've got a great show. we got Pete Glusak, veteran FLW competitor, and he's going to be talking about something that you and I will probably be doing next week, and that's ledge fishing. Well, we will have a great time comparing and contrasting. Always look forward to talking with Pete and seeing what he has to say. In the meantime, be sure to log on to BassEdge.com for the latest tips from the pros and a chance to win great prizes. Until next time, I am Aaron Martin, and for Steve Brigman and the rest of the Bass Edge crew, we look forward to seeing you next week right here on The Edge. This week's edition of Bass Edge's The Edge has been brought to you by B&W Trailer Hitches, Ditch Witch, Mega Wear Keel Guard, O'Reilly Auto Parts, and Legend Boats. For more information on Bass Edge, including our television show, training materials, e-newsletter, and podcast, please visit www.bassedge.com. Be sure to join us next week on The Edge.